Welcome to episode two of Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, professor of humanities at Holt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and teaching courses on its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab Media production, and the producer for this episode is Wilhelm Schenk. Last time, we met the Fatbird, then strolled through the history of 35 Commercial Road, the main building of Holt's London undergraduate campus. The idea was to show how an everyday place could illustrate important aspects of London's social and economic history. We saw how the local is shaped by the global, and in particular, how the imprint of slavery and empire are visible everywhere. We saw how geography shapes development, and in particular, the distinctive character of the edges of the city. And we saw some of the ways in which a place can be transformed, but also maintain a kind of continuity over time. 35 Commercial Road has been embedded in global trading relationships for over 300 years. In this episode, I want to consider what more we can discover if we walk around the campus looking out instead of looking in. Some tall buildings have gone up around us recently, so I will cheat a bit and imagine that you can see through them and occasionally through the exterior walls of this one. But the key question will be, what can the immediate neighborhood of 35 Commercial Road reveal about the history and geography of London? The view to the west is spectacular, so let's start there. Spread out in front of us is the city skyline from the Shard in the south to Tower 42 in the north. I'm still shocked at the sudden appearance of all these iconic skyscrapers. When I arrived in London in 1977, Tower 42 was going up, but none of the others existed even on paper. St. Paul stood alone and dominant as it had for centuries. My personal shock of the new gets me thinking about how London's most recognizable structures have changed through history. The earliest representations of London show nondescript buildings clustered around the cathedral with the tower, the guild hall, the bridge, and a great many parish church spires visible. Insofar as London had architectural landmarks, they were embodiments of religious, state, or civic power. Later, even when economic institutions and private corporations began to dominate, they were almost invisible. The Bank of England occupied an inconspicuous row of houses until the 19th century. The East India Company offices were intentionally designed to look smaller and less significant than they really were. It wielded power almost invisibly. That site is now occupied by Richard Rogers' spectacular Lloyds Building, and that change from corporate modesty to ostentation exemplifies what has happened in the city as a whole. But maybe the view, or rather the meaning of the view, is changing again. The newer city skyscrapers are not generally identified with the organizations which occupy them, as the bank or Lloyd's are. Both Tower 42 and the Gherkin were built as the headquarters of single companies, but those companies are no longer their sole occupants, and the buildings are no longer identified with them by name or in the public mind. Others were never intended for single corporate clients. They are known for their eccentric shapes, not their tenants. Is this new discretion significant? I'm not sure. Even at Canary Wharf, things are different. Enough musing. Let's look to the south. 
Right across Commercial Road is the beginning of Alley Street, which we will visit in our next episode. On the corner is an odd complex of buildings, with a very misleading inscription over the front entrance. The Proof House of the Gunmakers Company of the City of London, established by Charter Anno Domini 1637. In fact, the company moved to this location in 1675, and the building we can see dates only to 1826. But the location, its occupant, and its function are fascinating. The Gunmakers Company is the only city livery company to have its hall outside the city. And this is another demonstration of the edginess I dwelt on last time. Since the company's foundation, its primary activity has been to test all guns manufactured in the city before they can be sold. A gun could fail these tests quite explosively. So after the Great Fire, when such risks were at the forefront of everyone's mind, the company was not allowed to rebuild on its original site. London has long pushed dangerous activities away from the city, and here is a perfect example. It was also a wise precaution the first proof house here blew up in 1757. The location of the proof house is significant in other ways, too. The Tower of London was the national armory for centuries, and beginning in the reign of Henry VIII, the makers of weapons clustered in the area. Early commercial directories show several gun makers around Lehman Street between here and the river. The risk of fire and the proximity of the tower were good reasons for them to be here, Another was probably that the Wapping waterfront was where ships took on stores. For example, the Mayflower set sail from here, and in an age of endemic piracy, almost all ships carried weapons. The Proof House is an interesting building to have as a neighbor. Guns can still be tested there, so I listen for loud noises. In the past eight years, I've heard nothing, but I'm still glad to have a fire station just across the street. Now let's look down at Commercial Road itself. Heading east-southeast from Whitechapel into Docklands, the road is wide and straight, and these qualities, almost unique in East London, hint at an unusual history. Far newer than other arterial roads of the area, it was only begun in 1802 as a toll road created by a private company as a profit-making venture. Its purpose was to bring goods and raw materials unloaded at the new West India docks to the industrial districts of the East End. Commercial Road was so successful that it was quickly overwhelmed with traffic. By the 1830s, the crush was relieved by one of London's first passenger trams running down the middle, drawn by horses, of course. And the London and Blackwall Railway soon ran beside it to carry freight. The original road ended where it ran at Back Church Lane, just to the east of our building. But when ownership was transferred to the new Metropolitan Board of Works in the 1860s, it was extended past our building to Whitechapel High Street. Without this easy access, the history of our area might have been very different. You can get a sense of this by craning your neck a bit and looking southeast. There, what is left of Backchurch Lane runs off Commercial Road to the right. This narrow, kinked street was once a main thoroughfare. It has a rich history and may get an episode of its own in a future season, but let's have a taster now. 
18th century and 19th century Backchurch Lane was lined with burial grounds and had a ferocious reputation for squalor, disease, and crime. But that was never the whole story. For example, in the 1890s, Backchurch Lane was also home to the People's Arcade, a cultural center where one could see Yiddish theater, bare-knuckle boxing, and the silent movie Goddess Thedabara Breaking Hearts. Our building has no windows to the east, but your x-ray vision will allow you to see our next-door neighbors through the wall. This block of 30 flats is now called Morrison Buildings North. It was built in 1873, just after Commercial Road was extended in front of it, by the IIDC, the Improved Industrial Dwellings Company. The IIDC had been founded 10 years before as a pioneer of social enterprise and what we now call affordable housing. Its founder, Sidney Waterlow, believed that if construction costs were minimized and tenants were selected carefully, housing in London could be both affordable for the working classes and profitable for the providers. He was not wrong. By 1900, IIDC buildings were home to over 30,000 people, and the company remained in business into the 1960s. The design and construction methods of these flats are interesting since limiting costs was essential to the business plan. IIDC did not employ architects. Their blocks were built to set designs based on the model working class housing displayed at the Great Exhibition of 1851. They also pioneered the use of prefabricated components. Most of all, they built tenements, not houses, using as little expensive London land as possible. Morrison Buildings North has no yard or gardens at all. Beyond Morrison Buildings North, on the other side of Adler Street, is a bit of a monster. The Dryden Building was completed in 2000, and it's hard to look at it without flinching. But the history of the site is complex and surprising. In the 18th century, it was a pleasure garden, famous for mulberry trees, which gave the street at the rear its name. They may have been planted to feed silkworms. Then it was developed as part of the Severn King Sugar Refinery, the one that blew up in our last episode, and was used for various industrial purposes until the end of the 19th century. The site was then acquired by the United Synagogue, a merger of two congregations previously based in the city. Their sanctuary had a seating capacity of 370, and other buildings housed the chief rabbi's offices, a religious court, a library and reading room, several charities, and a friendly society. As Jews began to move out of the area in the 1930s, this complex went into decline. The Blitz accelerated the process, and the last Jewish organizations left in the 1970s. But for a lifetime, this was a hub of London's Jewish, cultural, and religious life. We should consider the support provided to vulnerable people on these two sites. Or maybe we should consider what it wasn't. Government, whether national or local, had nothing to do with the housing provided by the IIDC, or the many amenities provided at the United Synagogue Complex, just as it had almost nothing to do with the construction of Commercial Road itself. The IIDC was not even philanthropic. Like Rautenhaus and our taster, it provided a 5% return on investment, though it was founded in part for social purposes. 
Whitechapel was famously poor in the 19th century. It was one of the first neighborhoods described as a slum, but the early efforts to relieve that poverty were almost entirely undertaken by private individuals and organizations. The sad truth, however, is that all that energy and inventiveness and generosity were simply not enough. Without state involvement, the people of Whitechapel remained mostly unhealthy, mostly uneducated, often desperate. I want to end this episode by returning to the Western Windows to talk about the greatest philanthropic benefactor of this area, about whom I have the mixedest of mixed feelings. Look past the fire station, and you will see a building site where the former home of the Cass School of Art is being completely rebuilt as offices. Beyond it is what was until recently the Sir John Cass Foundation Elementary School. The headquarters of that foundation is around the corner on Jewry Street, and half a dozen other institutions named after Cass, or formerly named after him, dot the area. We should not underestimate the impact of Sir John Cass's philanthropy on Whitechapel. For over 250 years, children have been educated, families have been housed, artists and craftspeople have been trained and supported by the foundation his generosity made possible. He was a true local hero and has been an inspiration for later benefactors. But people now ask an important question. Where did the money come from? Cass's father was a carpenter at a good moment. The family business flourished as London was rebuilt after the Great Fire. Sir John was himself master of the Carpenters Company in 1711, but soon moved to the Skinners, where he became master in 1714. This is a sign that his business interests had shifted from London building to overseas trade. In 1705, he had become a member of the Court of Assistance of the Royal Africa Company. He was also a director and held shares in the company until his death. In Cass's time, the Royal Africa Company was the largest organization engaged in the slave trade, transporting thousands of enslaved people across the Atlantic each year. As a member of the Court of Assistants, he was a senior manager of the business. He was in constant correspondence with the company's agents in West Africa, he was involved in the design and supply of slave ships. He even took a special, personal interest in the appointment of shipboard chaplains. As a director, he set the policies which determined how enslaved people were acquired, treated, and disposed of. As a shareholder, he profited enormously from the result. No one understood the full nature of that business, had more power to influence it, or benefited more from it than Sir John Cass. One story about Cass is too good not to tell. He died in 1718 of a brain hemorrhage in the middle of making his will. His intention was to leave the bulk of his estate to the educational charity that he had founded years before, and a document to that effect had been drafted, initialed, but not signed. His family contested the bequest, and the case spent 30 years in the Court of Chancery, before the will was approved, and the legacy, much diminished by legal fees, went to the foundation. I have no wish to judge Sir John anachronistically, applying ethical standards that he would not have understood. But I am puzzled 
at his solicitude for the spiritual welfare of his cargo when he had so little concern for their human rights or material circumstances. I am puzzled by his concern for the material welfare and education of the poor of Whitechapel when the money for his extraordinary philanthropy was made by treating other people purely as chattel. Slavery was not uncontroversial at the time. How did he think about it? And how should we think of him? Should we continue to honor him for his philanthropy? Shouldn't we also condemn his racism, his brutality, his pious hypocrisy, his very unchristian greed? Should the statues and monuments that honor his memory remain in place? Shouldn't they at least be accompanied by something that tells the whole story? We should not erase this history. We should confront it. Well, we have covered a lot of ground in this episode without moving much at all. We have continued to develop the idea of edginess. We have also witnessed some extraordinary innovation, the private funding of Commercial Road, the building methods and finances of the IIDC. We have seen some tremendously energetic social commitment at the Union Synagogue Complex, and we have further explored the relationship between Whitechapel and the world embodied in the legacy of Sir John Cass. That's enough for now. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you will join us next time for a stroll through Goodman's Fields. If you wish to support Side Streets, please become one of our Patreon subscribers. For just a dollar a month, more if you can afford it, you will get access to extra content such as videos, articles, and audio clips. You can find a link and much more on our website, sidestreets.co.uk. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, researched and written by me, Alan Hertz. The producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk.